Father, we are incredibly indebted to You. We thank You for the affirmation and confirmation of Your presence in Your Word to us. Even when we do not feel Your presence, have no sense. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John. As we continue our consideration of the Gospel of John, we find ourselves in the seventh chapter of John. And this morning, we're going to begin with the 14th verse, and we'll read through the 24th verse, and this section will serve as the basis for the morning message. John chapter 7, verse 14 in the New American Standard Bible, reads as follows. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me? Because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In Jesus' earthly ministry, and even to this day, and throughout the history of the church in the world, Jesus has been looked at askance. Men and women have been suspicious of Jesus. They have been suspicious of his teaching and they have been suspicious of the deeds which Jesus did. We see this in this text of scripture. So let's begin first of all considering the suspicion that this crowd in Jerusalem during the festival or the feast of booths the kind of skepticism that they had about the teaching of Jesus. It was true then and in is true today. Christ made a surprising appearance. Remember what we saw last week. Jesus' brothers were encouraging Jesus to go to Jerusalem at this season of the year. They were saying, nobody who wants to be known publicly does what he does or says what he says in private, but he does it publicly. This is the ideal time, brother, for you to go. But we know what the Scripture says about those brothers. There were four of them. We have their names in Matthew chapter 13, 55. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Not to be confused with the Apostle Judas. There were four of his brothers and at least two sisters. And the Scripture says even his brothers were not believing in him. Do you know how much that must have pained Jesus? The Bible says in the introductory part of John chapter 1, that Christ was the true light coming into the world, enlightens every man. He came to His own, and that probably suggests He came to His own people. Of course, those descendants of Abraham, those whom we call the Jews, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. More precisely, Jesus says a prophet is... Not without honor, except where? In his own town and in his own household. Jesus experienced that sort of rejection from his own brothers and sisters. They were skeptical of Jesus. They had pled with Jesus to go up to 
Jerusalem at this festival of booths because we know from the historian Josephus, contemporary with the New Testament era, he tells of all the three mandatory feasts, Passover, week, Feast of Weeks or Ingathering, and the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was the most significant in terms of popularity. But Jesus said, you go up, I'm not going up. And then we saw last week how Jesus seemingly contradicted himself and he went up. And he went secretly, however. He did not go in a crowd. Probably instead of taking the common route that one would take from Galilee down to Jerusalem where there would be masses of people going in large crowds, Jesus took a route that would have been forbidden, really, by the teachers of the day. He went through Samaria which was forbidden because of the fact that the Samaritans were what were known as non-Jews. They were like half-breed Jews, a mixture of Gentile blood and Jewish blood. He would have been contaminated, but he went that way so he could go alone. And then all of a sudden, in midweek, the feast lasted eight days. Midweek, we don't know the exact day of the feast, but Jesus surprisingly shows up at the temple. That's what we see in verse 14. Look at it. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. We're going to see later in the Gospel of John in the 13th chapter that Jesus speaks to his apostles on the night he was betrayed. And he said this about himself to them. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. I am your Lord and teacher. Jesus was a teacher. He was a rabbi. And he makes this showing at the temple. And he began to teach. The tense of the verb means he didn't just teach once. He taught quite often during the course of that day, probably throughout the entirety of his time in Jerusalem at this particular season of the year. Now let's look at verse 15. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? They knew that would be those members of the elite part of the religious establishment. And we've seen over and over again this reference to the Jews. And that would be a reference to the elitists. It would be a reference to the elders and the chief priests and the scribes who were at the tip of the spear in their effort to do Jesus in. And we know that they were the ones who were hearing him, among others who were there. The true seekers after the Lord were there. And the result is, even these leaders were astonished. This brings to mind a couple of places in the Gospels outside of John. Mark 6-2, after Jesus had been teaching them, the Scripture says that they were amazed at the teaching of Jesus. And do you remember what Matthew says at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount about Jesus' teaching? He says, the people who heard the Sermon on the Mount were astonished because He did not teach like the scribes and like the Pharisees of the day. Now, how did they teach? This is the way they taught. They would begin their teaching by quoting at least one venerated, one great rabbi, either alive at the moment, but more accurately, some rabbi who had lived generations before, and that rabbi's interpretation of the Scripture had been raised to a level of superiority over the Word of God. So the rabbi was teaching what others who had preceded him, had taught him and others. But Jesus was different. These leaders, these elitists, knew that he had not been to seminary, was not be called seminary, had been rabbinical school. He had not been to sit at the feet of some learned teacher, some learned rabbi. You may recall 
the statement that is made about the Apostle Paul before he was known as Paul. Paul was his Greek name. Remember that he was a Roman citizen, so he would have carried a Greek name. But his Hebrew name was Saul. You may remember that the Scriptures tell us he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the two leading rabbis of Paul's day and probably Jesus' day too. The other was Hillel. Rabbi Gamaliel was the one who taught the Apostle Paul. So, Jesus had not sat in any human rabbi's feet. How did he get this learning that is astonishing us? Even his enemies were astonished by it, and the general population were wowed by it as well. How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Does this ring a bell for you about the apostles of Jesus? In the fourth chapter, when John and Peter, remember they're just common fishermen, don't think that they were not learned. They were learned men. They studied the Torah, but they had not had the opportunity for formal education either. But when they were preaching with such great power after the Pentecostal experience, they were brought before this tribunal known as the Sanhedrin, this council of 70, this council which would be synonymous with the Jews. And they were scolding Peter and John, saying, don't talk in this name anymore. If you do, you will have us to pay. And then they said, we cannot help but teach. They dismissed them, and they began to consult with one another. Do you remember what they say? They knew that they were unschooled, uneducated men. Sound familiar? But this is what Luke goes on to say. But they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Being with Jesus was critical for their being men who were used by God. Do you know you and I? have the equal opportunity to be with Jesus. And the primary role of us in being with Jesus is not unlike the role of Peter and John. We are to listen to Him. You may recall, when Jesus was a guest in the house of His dear friends, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and Jesus and His Men had shown up unexpectedly. Martha's bustling and hustling in the kitchen to get a meal together for these distinguished guests. And she pops her head out of the kitchen, and when she does, she sees her younger sister sitting at the feet of Jesus, and all she is doing is listening. It infuriated Martha, so much so that she had the audacity to scold Jesus and say, make her get up and come into the kitchen and help me. She is wasting valuable time. We have work to do. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are bothered and worried about many things. Your sister has found the one thing which will never be taken away from her. It's the most important thing, listening to me. Do you know why it was important? Well, let's look why it's important. If we go back to our text, verse 16. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but him, his rather, who sent me. So when Jesus would teach Peter, and John, and Mary, and any others who sat under his teaching, whose teaching were the people hearing. The people were hearing the teaching of none other than God Himself. Now, we know Jesus is God. No doubt about it. That's a key feature of the Gospel of John, to underscore and to highlight the fact that Jesus is not simply a perfect man. Jesus is not only a God. Jesus is God on the par of God the Father. That's what we encounter right out of the box when we open the book of John. The Word became flesh, speaking of God and Jesus. And Jesus 
dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when Jesus says what he says in answer to the question which is raised, how has this man become learned having never been educated? He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus, in his humanity, had submitted himself. He was a subordinate to the Father in his humanity. That's what he did in setting an example for us that we would follow, that we would submit ourselves to God the Father. And the key to submission is that we listen to what the Father says. How do we get that information? We get it because Jesus says, for instance, in John chapter 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Fruit that remains. He says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends because everything, get this, listen, everything, that the Father has confided in me, I am passing on to you. Amazing, isn't it? So, the words of Jesus are not words that He thought up. They are words that God the Father spoke to Him, and He in turn spoke to the apostles, and the apostles in turn wrote them down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus says to the apostles, Prior to his departure, on the night before he died, Jesus says, You will be guided into all truth by the Holy Spirit. And he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything which I have said to you. Hence, we have the apostles' teaching embodied in what we call the New Testament. When Jesus spoke, he spoke authoritatively. Do you know where his authority rested? It rested in the Word of God. Jesus quoted Scripture when he would speak, and then, unlike the rabbis of his day, he did not quote previous rabbis or people who he thought might have been people who were learned and educated. Rather, he said, truly, truly, I say to you. Have you noticed how frequently he uses that formula to introduce a statement in the book of John? We looked at one last week from John 12, 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The truly, truly translates the word amen, amen. We say, Amen, Amen. And when we say, Amen, what do we really suggest? The prayer is over. That's what we think. That's not what the word meant. The word means, I confirm, I concur, I affirm. And what Christ was saying when he would introduce any of his sayings with that, Amen, Amen. He had been in constant contact with the Father. And the Father has spoken to Jesus. And Jesus says, Amen, Amen, Father. Truly, truly, I say to you. And then he says what he says. And it's coming straight from the mouth and heart of God the Father. So the Scripture, according to Exodus 9.16 quoted by Paul in Romans 9.17. Exodus 9.16, Romans 9.17. In Exodus, Moses writes, the Lord says, and then he makes a statement. And then that statement is borrowed to make a point by Paul in Romans 9.17. But rather than saying, the Lord says, this is what Paul writes, the Scripture says. So what do you and I have when we open the book, and we sit at the feet of Jesus, as it were, to listen. What do we receive? What do we hear? A better question would be, whom do we hear? We hear none other than God Himself, by His Spirit, speaking to us. Jesus went to the most reputable school. As we read from Deuteronomy 8, 15-20, 18 rather, 15 through 20, you might be asking, what does that have to do with this message? It has a lot to do with it because, remember, this was a messianic promise 
God told Moses, I'm going to raise up from among your people, the Israelites, a descendant of Abraham. He's going to be a prophet like you. And he's going to say everything I give him to say. It won't be his own words. I'm going to put the words in his mouth. And he's going to say them. Jesus fulfilled that promise. Jesus was not self-taught, but God taught. Isaiah 50, verse 4. Speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, the Scripture says, you, he's talking to the Father, the Messiah's talking to the Father, to God. He says, you have given me the tongue of a disciple. You know what a disciple is, don't you? It's not simply a follower The more basic meaning of a disciple is a learner. I have given you the tongue of disciple so that you may have a word to sustain the weary one. Now, let me ask you a question. I know the answer to this question. Does the Lord ever give you encouragement from His Word? It's amazing to me how Christian people go all over the place looking for answers to their dilemmas, and they don't go to the source. We have the voice of God in the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, that speaks to us if we go. And in John 8, 28, let's look over to 8, 28 for just a moment. The Scripture says, Jesus says, when you... Lift up the Son of Man. He's talking about His crucifixion. Then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative. Catch this last part. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. Who was Jesus' teacher? Who was Jesus' rabbi? None other than God the Father Himself. And so we have that same incredible privilege Christ never claimed originality. Now, he had a lot of original things to say from the human side because he could say these things. You've heard that it was said, and he quotes what the rabbis had said, that he says, but I say to you, he was saying it because he was getting the message from the Father. Do you know the world prizes originality? Even within the church? I am... Amazed, and let me be real frank, I am appalled at how many Christians are constantly running from this program to that program, following this person or following that person, trying to get some newfangled angle on how to live the Christian life. There's nothing newfangled about it. The living of the Christian life is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the Word of God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. Paul writes, and it's equivalent to being filled with the Holy Spirit when you and I do it, because it's the Spirit who inspired the Word. It's the Spirit who illuminates the Word to us. And the outcome of that is we will be men and women who not merely are hearers of the Word, but we will do be doers of the Word also. Turn to Matthew 24 for just a moment. When Jesus is talking about how there will be those who call themselves original in order to mislead us, who are the elect, people whom God has chosen us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Look at Matthew 24, 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Jesus was preparing the apostles and his other disciples for the fact that there were going to be many who would come in their lifetime to mislead them, claiming that they were the Christ. And we see it all the time in our day. Look at verse 24 of the same chapter. Jesus says, For false Christs, And false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. We don't have to go looking for people who do signs and wonders. And I'm not poo-pooing signs and wonders. Jesus still does that. 
But people are hankering after a sign. Remember, it's what Jesus says about people who want a sign. What does He say? It is an adulterous and sinful people who seek after a sign. Remember the parable that Jesus tells, and maybe not a parable at all, probably depicts something that really happened. Do you remember how Jesus tells about a man named Lazarus, not to be confused with the brother of Mary and Martha, but He tells about Lazarus, this poor man who had no friend except dogs who would come and lick the sores on his body. And this man sat outside the palatial home and estate of this rich man who is simply described as dives. And this man would pass him by and not even give him the time of day something like you and I do at times. When we come to an intersection, we see a beggar on the street and we look the other way. We don't make eye contact with him or her. We just go forward. And then he died. Both of them died. And do you remember what this man dives says to Father Abraham in whose bosom Lazarus was? Do you remember what he said? He begged him to send one of his, to send someone, an angel, if you please, to go to one of his brothers or all of his brothers and tell them about the fact that hell is real. And it's awful. So repent. And do you know what Father Abraham said to him? Do you remember? He said, there's not going to be a fulfillment of that request. The reason being, if they would not believe Moses, why do you think they would believe on the basis of some miracle? That's what he said. So what is that saying to us? What is most important? It is the Word of God. Jesus did not claim originality at all. Allow me to mention a couple more things about this. I want to just give an illustration from the life of the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody. This man only had a third grade education, which was not altogether uncommon in the middle of the 19th century. He could read, he could write, But he butchered the king's English. He was invited to go, of all places, to Cambridge, the leading or one of the two leading universities in Great Britain, maybe even all of the world. And as he gathered to speak to a group of students, all-male students, this is the way he began his first sermon. Young men, don't ever think God don't love you because he do. That's the way he introduced it. And probably a lot of those students would have checked out right there. I mean, these were people who were highly privileged and highly educated. But do you know, literally hundreds of Cambridge men during that mission to that university, the preacher being this humble man, Dwight L. Moody, hundreds of them came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because Moody was taught by God. Well, let's go on to verse 17. See what the Scripture says here. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. The way to know the truth is to do what God says, to do what Jesus says. And the question is raised by different scholars as to what that really means. It's a little puzzling. Seems like double talk on the surface. But we're helped immensely by going back to something we've already considered more than once in our study of the Gospel of John to the sixth chapter. And look again at verses 28 and 29. John 6, 28 says, Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So, the will of God is that we simply trust in Christ alone. And what happens invariably is that good works flow out of our trust in Jesus and His words. You cannot, nor can I, trust in Jesus without believing in His words. And where do we learn what we're to do 
after we've learned who we are. We're to be like Christ. And Christ was a man who went about doing good. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's part and parcel of being a follower of Christ that we do what we see Him doing, just as He did what He saw the Father doing. Do God's will is what this is telling us. And you will know that it is true. This was a question in the minds of the hearers. They were unsure, but Jesus made it plain to them. Just do what I'm telling you and you will learn. How many of you have had that experience? Before you came to Christ, you were unsure about Jesus. You were unsure what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Then you trusted in Christ. You put your faith in Him. And it was an all-in kind of faith. It was not just an intellectual agreement with what the Bible says about Jesus. It would have included a lot of that. But you trusted Christ. You gave Him your life. And after having given Him your life, all of a sudden the light came on and you began to understand things. And the more you obeyed Christ, the greater your understanding was. This is what Jesus was driving at when He said in John chapter 14, He who has My commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves Me. And he who loves Me will be loved by My Father, and I will love him, and I will reveal Myself to him. Do you see the link between obeying and knowing Christ? It's something we cannot separate. And we must understand this. If we're going to be people who know the will of God and benefit from doing the will of God, one learns one cannot do it, that is, life, on his or her own, when we understand the awesomeness of the will of God. Probably there's more than one person besides me here who has known what the will of God is, and it just sort of makes you weak-kneed. Have you ever felt that before? When you knew God was giving you an assignment, it's spelled out in Scripture, there's a particular application of that assignment in your life, and it frightens you because you don't know what kind of reception you will meet. You're fearful that you won't do it correctly, and so you feel very weak. We come to that place if we understand the will of God, where we understand we have to rely totally on God. This is what Paul was writing to Timothy when he says to him, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You can't be strong in yourself, Timothy, but you can be strong in the power, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to trust in Him. You have to believe in Him. Many of you are familiar with the name Eric Little. Eric Little was a sprinter. He was from Scotland. He was the son of missionaries to China. He'd gone back to Scotland to get his education before returning to China to serve as a missionary. And he ran. He said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure because God made me fast. It's okay to run. God gave you talents and He gave you talents not simply for yourself or for the enjoyment of other people. He gives you and me talents in order that we might trust Him and He infuses those talents with His power and the result is people's lives are touched by God through our trusting in Christ. Little, in 1923, was one year away from the 1924 Olympics his best event was the 100-yard dash. He was participating almost on a whim at an event that was not a highly touted event at a place called Stoke-on-Trent. He was participating in the 400-meter or 400-yard dash. He had run the race before, but not very often. Remember, his specialty was the 100 meters. He was aiming for that for the Olympics in 1924. And the gun went, the cr field was crowded, and as he started shortly into the race, he was knocked down, not intentionally, but just the gaggle of runners together made it 
possible for him to be knocked down. If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, you know the story. It's not quite as accurate there as it was in time, although what you see depicted in the film is accurate. He falls down, and then rather than just giving up, I mean, you know, a 400-yard dash, usually under 40, under 50 seconds anyway, and you lose that time, there's no way. But amazingly, he got up. And when he got up and got running again, he was 20 meters behind the nearest competitor. And he starts running, and the people were just thinking, wow, it's very admirable that he would get up after having fallen when he knows he can't win. But don't tell Eric Little that in that moment. He's running and he's running, and finally he catches up, and finally he wins the race and falls exhausted. When he was asked afterwards, how did you do it? He said, the first half of the race, I ran as fast as I could. The second half, I ran faster with God's power. That's the way we're to live this life. It's depending upon the Lord. I doubt if anyone's going to run in the Olympics who's here. I don't want to limit your vision for your life. But it's doubtful. Maybe in the next service there'll be some aspiring to that. But look, God has a plan for your life. And it's to do His will. His will is based upon not doing things in your own power. The quickest way to short-circuit God's will for your life is to try to do it in your own strength. The pathway to succeeding in doing God's will is to do it in dependence upon the Lord Himself. If we humble ourselves before God's Word, to know God's Word and to obey it, we will see that God's Word is true. Maybe you're a skeptic here today about the Word of the Lord. I don't know why you would be here this time of the morning, on a Sunday morning, but it's probable there's one skeptic in the audience. You're not sure about the Word of the Lord. Well, you know how you get sure? You take a step of faith, and it's not a leap in the dark, by the way. It's based upon the person of Jesus Christ who is alive. He is raised from the dead. And His words are true without flaw. And His words are true because He heard them from the Father and He gave them to His apostles who in turn, under leadership of the Holy Spirit, gave us the Scriptures that are available to us. What I've noticed over the years is that people who grow the fastest grow because they practice what the Bible teaches. It's not rocket science. I wonder sometimes, I see people who come to Christ, apparently, they seem to be sincere, and I see them, and they never seem to grow. Then I see people who just grow like weeds. The person who came to my mind as I was thinking about this is a young man, now probably 50 years old at least. His name is Luke Torpy. I met him on the campus of the University of Texas at Arlington when I was a pastor there. I had gone to the Free Speech Center to listen to a guy, a Christian guy, supposedly preach the gospel. And really what he did, he didn't preach the gospel. He just spent his time tearing the students down. There was no good news in it whatsoever. And I heard behind me three men talking in a foreign accent. I didn't turn around immediately to see who they were, but I heard one man say, that's a bunch of and an expletive. And so you can figure out what that was. And I turned around to these three men and I saw two Asian Indian men and a shorter man who did not look particularly Indian, but I thought maybe he's part Asian Indian. And I said to these men, would you like to know what the real gospel of Jesus is? And they said, yes. And I said, can I make an appointment to meet with you? There were three. Two said yes. One said, no, I don't want to meet with you. I made an appointment with both. I went to one of the Asian Indians' apartment, knocked on the door, rang the bell. He didn't show up. He had stiffed me. But I went to the other young man's apartment. I discovered that he was 
a quarter Asian Indian, half Irish, and a quarter Portuguese. He was Roman Catholic. And I asked him, would you like to go through the Gospel of John to discover who Jesus is and what the real Gospel is? He did, and long story short, within six weeks, he had given his life to Christ. And it was like he was full grown from the beginning. He was a bright human being. But it had nothing to do with his intellectual ability because he was a skeptic prior. But it's when Christ spoke to his heart and he stepped out in faith and he trusted Christ that he grew, he grew faster than anyone I have ever seen grow in his faith in my life. And it was due to the fact he was willing to obey the Lord. Well, let's go ahead and look at verse 18 before our time expires. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself... And let me interpret this a little bit. This is literally what it says in the original, original language. He who speaks out of himself, meaning the source of what this kind of person speaks is himself, his thoughts, not the thoughts of anything else or anyone else. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. So here's a point for us to remember. Beware of people who are originals. Jesus did not commit himself to being original. What did he do? He subordinated himself to the Father. He heard what the Father said, and he communicated that to his apostles and others who would listen to him. But Jesus would say to us, beware of such people who speak from their own understanding. Jesus was not an original, as we've seen, And he says, he who talks on his own seeks his own glory. But let's see, the person who really is used by God is not self-centered, but another-centered. Look at what he says in the last part of verse 18. He says, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus is speaking of himself. Jesus sought the glory of the one who sent him, which is the Father. When the preacher's sole aim is to seek God's glory, his teaching will be sincere and it will be accurate. I don't know if you've noticed it. I would assume you have. That when I stand in this place to teach God's Word, I go to the Word of God. I'm in good company. Jesus did the same thing. And you, wherever you find yourself, whether it's here, when I'm gone, or it's somewhere else, and you're looking for a place to call home as a church, look for a person who does not seek his own glory, but seeks the glory of the one who sent Jesus. And like Jesus, goes to the Word of God, opens the Bible... And let's God speak, dare I say, yes, speak through the human instrument even to this day. The reason I can say this, this is not my word, it's God's word. And I don't pretend to interpret it accurately in every case. But it's not because of lack of interest on my part. Lack of my hope or the lack of preparation. It would be for some other reason. I pray often before I come up here to teach. I say, Lord, if there's anything I say that's wrong, don't let it connect with anybody here. Let them completely forget it. Now, you probably forget more than I want to know about. (laughs) That's another subject altogether. The fruit of Jesus' three-year ministry is the Apostles' teaching. It's the most trustworthy text in history. There is no document of antiquity that comes within a hundred miles of the authenticity of the Bible. And you say, what is the basis for that, Mike? The basis of that is when you lay aside the Bible, you lay aside it, the writings of Thucydides or Herodotus or Josephus or Caesar, 
that is, Julius Caesar, all these documents which are held in such high regard by historians of ancient history, and you compare the extant manuscripts that are available, they pale, they're minuscule in comparison to the plethora, the huge number of these documents of the New Testament and, yes, the Old Testament, which we have, that are so much more authentic because they're closer to the time when the original text was actually written. Well, let's look, and we can deal with this rather quickly as we finish. The world is suspicious of Jesus' words. Are you suspicious of His words? Well, there's one way to dispel such suspicion, and that is to do what the Word of God says. Believe in the Lord and see what happens. Dare you do that? But the world is displeased with the deeds of Christ also. They're countercultural. They were in Jesus' day and they would be today too. Look at verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now here's what their beef was. Their beef was, and we read about this in chapter 5, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And they were all hot and bothered because of that. But what did they do in response? They wanted to kill Jesus. You see the irony there? Jesus broke the Sabbath. They want to murder Jesus. They can't keep the law themselves. Jesus is pointing that out. The crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. They pulled the demon card on Jesus. When we can't understand why people behave the way they behave, and sometimes it's due to demons, I know that, but we, you know, we pull that out on people who disagree with our viewpoint and don't substantiate our standing. Verse 21. Now, Jesus is the master debater. Some of you have debated in college or in high school. Some of you still debate for a living. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. He's referring to the work which he did in healing this man who'd been crippled for decades. And... He says, for this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. In other words, he gave the right of circumcision to Abraham, who passed it down to his son Isaac, who passed it down to his son Jacob, who passed it down to his sons, whom we call the tribe of Israel. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. Now, here's what God had told the people of Israel to do. No matter when your son is born, I want you to circumcise him on the eighth day. So if your son is born on a Friday, he's going to have to be of necessity to obey the law, be circumcised on the Sabbath. And God says that's okay to do that because this is more important than the keeping of the Sabbath. God gave an out, if you will, regarding the Sabbath, the only one. Verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? You see the logic of Jesus? You remove a little bit of flesh from a baby if the eighth day falls on the Sabbath. And you allow yourselves because it's in obedience to God to break the Sabbath. It's really not breaking it. It supersedes in importance the keeping of the Sabbath in that case. Well, you do that to one of the two. And listen to what Rabbi Eliezer said. He was a contemporary of this era. He says, if circumcision, which concerns one of a man's 248 body parts, overrides the Sabbath, much more must his whole body in danger of death override the Sabbath. This man whom he healed was in danger of death. Jesus heals him. And Jesus says, what's your problem? You know the law of Moses, and the law of Moses puts a premium on one's life over against the keeping of the Sabbath. That's what he's saying. Christ takes his opponents at their own strongest point, the law. And by the way, what does the law have as its subject? Go back quickly to John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. 
John chapter 5, 39 to 40. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is thee that testify, these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So, who is the subject of the law? Jesus. That's right. And the objection of Jesus' detractors was to not, not to the healing. That's not what broke the law. It was their objection to it in their hearts that broke the law because they were not adhering to the spirit of the law. Let's look at verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Do not judge superficially, Jesus says. Get beneath the surface. Find the spirit of the law of the Lord. A whole man was put on a whole relationship with God because Jesus did what the Father told him to do, to heal him on the Sabbath. A couple of lessons to learn as we finish. Self-speakers are self-seekers. Beware of people who preach or teach and it's all a big show. They may say the right things even, but they're saying them not for their own, not for God's glory, but for their own glory. Be sensitive to that. You'll know. You'll do the will of God. You will know who that person or persons might be. And pray for them, but don't follow them. It would be a mistake. And one last thing, as a personal application, the Bible says, and this is lovely, everything the Bible says is lovely, but this is particularly lovely, to me at least. In the book of Isaiah chapter 48, 18, the Bible says, if only you had paid attention to my commands, that is, obey them, follow my will, because my will is in my commands, if only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river. And the word peace includes what we think of as peace, but it's the word shalom. It's your overall well-being. Your shalom will be like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Of the sea. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at you. And we are so grateful, Lord, that you willingly submitted yourself to the Father and became obedient even to the point of death, death on a shameful cross, Lord, to secure our salvation, to secure a place in our hearts, to instruct us, to empower us, to guide us. Help us to be men and women who are after your will and after you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.